0: Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. This is Eleanor Rangers, one of your co hosts. Tom Hill and I recently had the opportunity to speak with Jonathan Goff, serial entrepreneur, engineer, and founder of Altius Space Machines. In part one of this interview on propellant depots, we discussed what depots are, their history, and whether NASA or any commercial spaceflight companies have expressed interest in demonstration projects with interplanetary refueling.
1: Well, hello everyone. It's Tom Hill with Space 3D. And we are here tonight. We have an, an extremely interesting guest. His name is John Goff. And John Goff's background, he is a he describes himself as a space technologist, inventor, and serial space entrepreneur. I first heard about him through his Selenian Boondocks blog, where he writes about a lot of really interesting uh, topics, including the one we're gonna be talking about tonight. He was a co-founder of Masten Space Systems a while ago, and then he also founded his own company called Altius Space Machines, which works space robotics in Broomfield, Colorado. And he's there with his, uh, with his family, and he's got a degree, a Bachelor of Science in Manufacturing Engineering, and a Master of Science in Mechanical Engineering. So welcome to the show, John. Yeah, th- thank you, Tom. So uh, for those who've been listening to our previous talks, we recently talked with Rand Simberg, who talks about how uh, we can't try to do – we can't do Apollo again. And some people say, well, if we can't do Apollo, how else we could, could we do it? And Jonathan has been one of, the, one of the big proponents of an alternate way to do that, and that's using depots. So, John, how about giving us a quick overview about a depot and what it, what it does?
2: Yeah, I mean, so the idea with propellant depots, uh, you know, they're kind of analogous to gas stations here on Earth. You know, so like historically, when people have tried to do like exploration missions, um, it's often been the case that you can't carry everything with you uh, all at once without being practical. Like some of the historical now, like back in the day when they were first exploring Antarctica, we didn't have the technology and everything else to realistically, you know, carry all the supplies you'd need all along. So they would establish you know, caches or depots at specific places along the way, pre-stock them with supplies, and then, you know, as you, do, you know, as they went to do the mission, they would then stop at the depots along the way. And in their case, refueling was, you know, giving their sled dogs food and, you know, picking up food for the humans and stuff. Um, but in the case of space, this is, you know, the idea is you have a, you know, gas station, you know, a facility with big tanks and refueling hardware, that you can preload fuel into and then when you go to do a mission you're refueling your hardware at one or more depots along the way so instead of trying to launch everything in a you know on a single very big launch vehicle you can now launch things using much smaller more commercially relevant launch vehicles and part of the idea being that you know like you look at the Apollo missions to the moon and you know once they get to orbit most of the masses delivered to orbit was propellant, um, you know, like the actual dry mass of, you know, of the various hardware. Like if you took the lunar module and the, you know, command module and unloaded all the propellant for, you know, lunar orbit insertion, trans-Earth injection, you know, lunar, and the lunar uh, descent and ascent, um, you take all that propellant out, and the mass is now something that's light enough you could almost launch on an existing commercial launch vehicle. And so the idea here is that, you know, right now when a rocket launches to LEO, usually the thing's mostly empty by the time it gets to low Earth orbit. But if you refuel it in low Earth orbit, it can now take that payload it delivered to low Earth orbit and send it almost anywhere else in the solar system. So this is a way of being able to take things that are relevant for commercial applications, like delivering satellites to orbit, delivering cargo to space. Facilities delivering passengers to space, space facilities, and now allow them to go much, much further throughout the solar system and, and also to reuse things. I mean, like right now, you know, the Apollo paradigm was this disintegrating totem pole that you'd launch this big stack of stuff and then you'd burn the first rocket until its tanks are gone and then you toss it. it, gets used once, you know, and then you'd burn the next stage of the rocket until you know, until it's tanks to run out and toss that. And you leave the lunar module on the lunar surface. You leave the sent module in lunar orbit. You leave, you know, and the part that actually returns all the way to Earth is, you know, a tiny fraction of the original hardware. And even that isn't reused. Nothing's reused. So you're throwing away billions of dollars worth of hardware every single time to do a mission where with in space refueling, You know, you can make the lander reusable and you have to do things a little bit differently, but you can make it reusable. You can make it where the hardware that's taking crew, you know, and the hardware to and from from low Earth orbit to lunar orbit. And you can make that refuelable. Um, And now all of a sudden you take those that hardware that may still cost billions of dollars. Well, hopefully not. I think commercially it could cost a lot less than that. But even, you know, even NASA hardware that could cost billions of dollars and you start reusing that you know, five, 10 times and all of a sudden the permission cost starts coming down to something a lot more reasonable. You know, my end goal is it's like I'd like to see trips to the moon get down to the price that like space tourists could afford it. You know, if you can get that price point down from the quarter billion to a billion dollars per person that a NASA traditional mission would cost down into the, you know, sub $10 million per person range. And all of a sudden you could, I think you'd get a lot of buyers that would be, excited to pay real money to do that. And it's like, you know, but you got to get the price of transportation down. And the only way that's going to happen is with reuse. And the only way you can really reuse things in space is by refueling them. And personally, I think that depots is the most practical way of doing that uh, in most cases. So
1: now what a lot of people don't realize is that this idea isn't really all that new. Back when they were doing the Apollo trade-offs, they had an approach that they called Earth Orbit Rendezvous, which dealt Mm -hmm. with a lot of these things, correct?
2: Yeah, yeah. Von Braun called it tanker mode. I mean, the idea is even older than that. As far as I can tell, the first time it was proposed was in 1928. Yeah, a guy, uh, Guido uh, von Pirque uh, from Austria, you know, he proposed this idea of low-Earth orbit stations that could refuel rockets to allow them to go to the moon or other places like that. Um, so the idea has been around for a while. Um, I'd really love to see it, you know, actually flight demonstrated and go into practice, you know, before it's turned 100. But, um, you know, yeah, we're down to less than 10 years on that clock. When von Braun was talking about, you know, his preferred mode is what he called tanker mode or Earth orbit rendezvous, because you know he you know he realized that uh, you know here was a situation where uh, you could use rockets that were sized small enough that they're still relevant for other commercial military applications, and thus were less likely to get canceled. I and mean, the problem with the Saturn V was it was so big and so expensive that the only thing it was really useful for was doing moon missions, which meant that as soon as they wanted to slow down moon missions, they canceled the rocket. Whereas if they could have done this with smaller rockets like Saturn 1 or, you know, Saturn 1 class missions, you know, then it was a lot more likely that there could be a, you know, justification to keep that rocket going for other sorts of missions, even if they temporarily throttled lunar missions and stuff. But, uh, the, you know, the, the same story is, you know, is, is here with Depots today. You know, if you design your architecture around something like SLS it's so big that the only thing that's really useful is deep space missions, then what happens if NASA has to tone back its deep, you know, deep space budget? You know, uh, like you could end up getting that canceled and now, like, you're back to the drawing board. Whereas if you design something that can use, you know, realistic commercially justifiable missions that are doing commercial and DOD launches and other NASA robotic science missions, you know, then you're just buying it when you need it. You know, you're sharing the, you know, you're you're sharing the fixed costs across a wide range of customers. Yeah.
1: Okay. So we've, we've touched on it, but we need to go into a little more detail. If you're deciding to go with a depot style architecture, it isn't as simple in its execution as a uh, taking everything with you. I think it's more mm-hmm. like a trade-off where you're, you're trading complexity on the ground with your you're taking everything to complexity in space where you're you're depoting,
2: yeah, I mean, so you know depots like they have more resiliency, but they're definitely more complexities, so for instance, you know you have to launch the depot, you have to launch propellant to the depot, um you have to rendezvous with the depot and transfer propellant, you know, but then after that, it may not be that much more complex, it, depending on what you're doing, it may be one where. Um, I'm kind of a fan of the whole uh, refuel early, refuel often sort of, you know, uh, strategy where it's like, you know, the first place that you can stop in space is low Earth orbit. So refuel there. And then you should at least also refuel at the last place that you can do before getting to your destination. So you're going to Mars, you should refuel in Mars orbit. You know, you shouldn't be lugging – landing propellant all the way. I mean maybe on your first missions you have to do that, but as soon as you can avoid doing that, as soon as you can be taking on landing propellant in Mars orbit instead of having to you know shove that propellant all the way through a trans-Mars injection and keep it stored for 9 months and everything else. Like I mean you're much better off to you know refuel at each place that's you know at least at those bookends, you know, at the first place that you can and the last place that you can. And you come back from Mars, it should be the same way. The whole idea of, oh, we're going to load up enough propellant on the Mars surface to send ourselves all the way back to Earth means your rocket's got to be bigger to do the same mission instead of saying, yeah, we're going to have a tanker that ferries propellant up to a depot and fills it up, you know, keeps it topped off. And then, you know, uh, periodically we're flying missions back to Earth where, you know, who knows, actually it's probably not even the same rocket that you took off uh, that is the one that ferries you back and forth. I mean, you you know, you look at terrestrial transportation, you know, for instance, you know, I've got a business incubator I go to out in Toronto every couple of months. And, you know, do I hop in a car and drive all the way to Toronto, you know, with a bunch of gas tanks strapped to the back of my car? No, you know, that'd be, that'd be so much simpler. You know, it's like you just have one vehicle and everything's done up front you know, but no. You you hop in a car, you drive to the airport, you hop in an aircraft. You know, you fly. In my case, you know, to a connecting air, airport, and then you fly to Toronto, and then it, on the Toronto end, you you know, you take a bus to the metro station, and a metro station to you near know, where you're staying. And it's like, you know, you're using five or six modes of transportation, but they're optimized for what you're doing, and and initially, when traffic is low, you may not be able to afford that level of optimization. But, you know, when you're talking about settlement or being able to extract resources in a way that they're economically relevant to Earth, uh, all of that requires, like, getting really, really efficient transportation networks. And that's only going to happen with, you know, increasing specialization along the way. But, yeah, you'd refuel LEO, low Mars orbit. If you're going to the moon, you'd refuel, like, probably low lunar orbit. Not a big fan of putting a depot in uh, in the higher orbits just because the round-trip Delta V cost isn't split very well. But that's a general idea. Gotcha. Yeah, I
1: think uh, one theme I've always kind of liked is the idea of, you know, expanding your infrastructure. Right now, all of our almost yep. all of our infrastructure—well, let's say all of it—is here on Earth, and uh, we don't mm-hmm. have any out there. We're sending people out into the wilds, and uh, they're they're stuck if anything goes seriously wrong. <laughs> yeah, agreed. So now, uh, so one thing that uh, a common discussion about propellant depots is storing propellants, especially the mm-hmm. cryogenics. Uh, have you dealt much with that at all?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh personally, like the main storage we deal with is like cryogen doers in the back for all the, you know, like my company right now does a lot of satellite servicing and space robotics stuff and, you know, some with cryo transfer. Uh, so we tend to have, you know, a couple of liquid nitrogen doers sitting around the shop at any time. Um, You know, you go to any hospital in the world and it's got LOX tanks. And so cryo storage, I mean, the main one that's a problem is hydrogen, because liquid oxygen, liquid uh, methane, and um, neither of those are that hard to store. I mean, low Earth orbit, the thermal environment's not great. You're snuggled up against a nice warm Earth that's at, you know, room temperature plus or minus filling half of the sky, and then you have the sun, which is really, really hot, you know, taking up a tiny fraction of the sky. But then you got space that's really cold, so there's things – Tricks you can do, depending on your orbital altitude, with you know, MLI or sunshields, that can get to the point where you can get the boil off down substantially. Um, low Earth orbit's always going to be something where you want to use propellant quickly. So uh, my per- my preferred approach for that is. Wherever you're generating the propellant, whether it's, you know, moon or asteroids and shipping it or on the earth and launching it, you know, pre-chill it down to a little bit over its freezing point, you know, kind of like what SpaceX does with their stuff, you know, but pre-chill your propellants as much as you can get away with, you know, use passive sun shields and things like that as much as you can get away with. And then initially, I think you can do that and mostly live with, you know, like as heat, you know, what heat doesn't get reflected away using a sun shield. You know, so the idea is you you have heat sources coming into you and then you have heat sinks, you know, cold sky that you're ejecting it to, and there's gonna be some you know net heat flux into your system in low Earth orbit, and that's gonna go to warming the propellants. But if you've subcooled the propellants, they have a lot of heat capacity. And so so long as you're actually using them quickly enough after they've launched, you might actually not have much in the way of boil off at all between good passive cooling and sub-cooling. You you might have some, you know, so it definitely pushes you to use it before you lose it, and maybe that pushes you towards active cooling down the road if, you know, if it makes sense. Um, But then in further out places, you know, like uh, depots in higher orbits, depots, people have talked about Lagrange points and things like that. At Lagrange points with passive cooling, you got to be careful not to freeze the locks, you know. Like you can actually – You know, the equilibrium temperature you can get to is actually below the freezing point of oxygen. I did not know know, Yeah, and and your hydrogen boil-off rate at that point is typically 10 times lower than it would be in low-Earth orbit. So, I mean, it's a mix. I mean, I'm a big fan of locks and hydrogen just because even as reusable launch vehicles drive the cost down of getting stuff to low-Earth orbit, it's still not going to be cheap. It's still going to be way more expensive than the propellant cost itself. And so the added Delta cost of using something like LOX hydrogen for an upper stage or an in-space stage versus LOX methane, at least to me, it still seems like a reasonable trade that the amount that you save in what you have to launch versus the added cost of using LOX hydrogen on orbit, I still think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, A lot of ISRU sources, you know, water um, is pretty common. Um, And so lox hydrogen works well with that. I mean, if you're talking Mars landers and ascent vehicles, sure, that one probably trades better for lox methane. Um, But most other things, I just bite the bullet and do lox hydrogen. It seems reasonable if it's a reasonable size stage. But, I mean, it's a solvable problem. The boil-off rates that... You can get with good passive insulation. Um, ULA thinks it's possible to get down into the less than half a percent a day kind of rate. You know, maybe, uh, you know, as low as I think they're saying a tenth of a percent a day and then like a hundredth of a percent a day out in like L1 or L2. So I think the boil off rates aren't ridiculous. Um, and if you pre-chill stuff, you get, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months of heat soaking into your system before it actually starts raising the pressure and requiring you to, you know, boil off propellants to keep the, you know, tanks at a reasonable pressure. Passive cooling, pre-chilling. You know, my suggestion would be LOX hydrogen. though reasonable people disagree. A lot of people are in love with LOX methane. I think it's reasonable, but I, I think you can make the argument either way. But I think the, you know, the boil-off problem just isn't that big of a deal realistically. So.
1: Okay. Yeah. I think I mentioned it in some of our early discussions. My, the way I kind of approached it was, hey, people are going to want water too. So you just accept that you're going to be boiling off some hydrogen and, you know, take the hydrogen, react it with some oxygen and, you know, just make, make lemonade out of your lemons there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's possible. And ULA's approach has been to like use that for, you know, if you're in low earth orbit or low lunar orbit, you need to do station keeping burns and so you're going to be burning propellant anyway. So if you can use that as propellant that's already been used to soak up the heat, so it's a gaseous propellant. You know, so you've already boiled it off, so it's absorbed heat through the evaporation process. And then instead of venting it at a room as a room temperature gas, you run it through an engine and burn it for your periodic settling or reboost thrust. You know, there, there's different ways of, you know, as you say, making, uh, you know, lemonade out of lemons and and it's just not an insurmountable problem. I mean, I think the technology is there where you can keep it to a reasonable rate. And I think the problem is a lot of the people who are worried about that are also looking at super low ops tempos, where it's like, you know, oh, we're going to fly one mission in a year, so we're going to be loading this up over a year. It's like, okay, you know, if you're only, you know, if your ambitions are that low. <laughs> You know, but even then it's like, okay, yeah, you launch an extra tanker, you know, you launch your locks first and a little bit of hydrogen that's going to be, you know, like one of the tricks with locks hydrogen is because the hydrogen's colder and has a much, much higher heat capacity, you can use that as a heat sponge to basically suck all the intercept all the heat that would go into the locks yep. and keep the locks that it's, you know, nice and chilly. And then you boil off just the hydrogen. So, I mean, if, if you're smart about it, like even if you were doing a low energy, you know, or a low ambition once a year sort of thing, you know, it's not a big penalty to launch an additional tank. For me, looking at it as a entrepreneur, you know, or or someone who cares about getting stuff done, it's like, you know, you want to get it done with the cheapest solution that's going to work reliably. If operating a big rocket that flies once or twice a year is a Core value proposition to you in itself, then yeah, okay, maybe. <laughs> you know, in my case, I'd much rather just be, you know, buying buying commercially uh, whatever's the cheapest transportation method at the time. I mean, that's that's the other nice thing about depots, right? Is that, you know, today the cheapest way to get propellant to a depot may be, you know, buying a Falcon 9 flight or a Falcon Heavy flight from SpaceX. You know, or depending on how much propellant you need, it might be buying excess propellant from vehicles, taking cargo vehicles to the space station. Um, you know, right now when SpaceX launches or when, you know, or especially when Cygnus launches on an Atlas V or something like that, there's usually a decent amount of excess capacity. Which, you know, in SpaceX's case, they use it to do a boost back burn to make it easier to recover the first stage. But in theory, there's no reason you couldn't use that to deliver not just the payload, but have leftover propellant on orbit. That if you had a depot that was in the same plane and altitude and relatively near the ISS, you could then rendezvous with it and sell the excess propellant, you know, to the depot. But the thing about a depot is it doesn't care. It doesn't care where it's getting the propellant from. A year from now, or a couple of years from now, somebody surprises us and makes a gun launch or a sling launch system that actually ends up being cost competitive with, you know, more traditional partial reusables like what SpaceX is doing. Great. You know, you can buy from them instead. Right. You know, Repellent if someone does care. Exactly. It's infinitely divisible. You know, it can be shipped in very small, uh, quant, you know, in any size quantity you want. And all you care about is who can sell it to you for the cheapest price. You know, it's a commodity. Um, you know, if that cheapest price is shipped from the moon, buy it from the moon. If it's from asteroids, buy it from asteroids. If it's, you know, SpaceX flying BFR at ten bucks a kilogram, great, buy it from them. Um, you know, but it's like you're you're agnostic to the source, um, so it gives you a lot more flexibility. Yep.
0: Hey, John. Um, this is Eleanor. I have a qu- couple questions for you. <clears throat> in listening to the discussion so far. Has um, NASA expressed any interest in some sort of demonstration related in conjunction with their proposed gateway out at what is it L2? And then the other question is, what about the commercial carriers? Have any of those expressed interest, like SpaceX, with their intentions to go to the go to Mars?
2: Yeah, so I mean, depots are a um, politically hot topic um, in that they're sometimes seen as competition for the big rocket vehicles that some groups at NASA and some of their congressional support seem to care about more than actually doing things with said rocket vehicles. They, there's a lot of people at NASA that are interested in refueling and are interested in depots. It's just a question of, you know, who who has more clout at a given point? Like, you know, back when the Obama administration first came in, they did the Augustine commission committee and, They said depots are at a tipping point. This is a tipping point technology that ought to be demonstrated, that a little bit of funding now could demonstrate it and could make a huge difference in how we do things going forward. And they even had a tech demo mission that they were gearing up to do. But that kind of fell apart. never happened, partially because of political uh, opposition, partially because they decided to do it as a kind of NASA in-house exercise instead of like doing it as a, you know, what would have been cool would be something more like way they do some planetary science missions where they say, hey look, here's these tipping point technologies that we think are really, really critical. That if somebody could make these work, it be a big deal. You know, let's do an open competition where it's a cost capped competition that says, you know, kind of like what they do with new new uh frontiers or or discovery class missions where it says, hey, we've we've had a review, it's come up with these potential destinations, and we're going to have a competition between these various things and and whichever one comes up, you know, whichever industry, NASA, academia team comes up with the best proposal, then we'll fund that, but it's cost capped. And if you go over by too much, you get your program canceled. And you don't get to bid on the next one. (laughs) You know, it's like you do something like that. And all of a sudden I think you'd get more done. But so there was some attempts early in the Obama administration to do that. Uh, There is some interest in refueling right now at the, uh, at the gateway, there's been talk about, you know, they recognize that, you know, Jason Cruzan is a smart guy. He recognizes that, you know, refueling and reusing lunar landers is the best way to get it affordable enough to do ambitious things, you know, on a t- on a small enough budget that they could actually do it. You know, NASA is not gonna, you know, uh, no one's gonna come and write NASA a blank check anymore. You know, so it's like they got to fit within a reasonable budget, so they got to be more affordable than in the past. So they have talked about refueling demos. They've been looking at it. Um, I don't know how far that's really gone, you know, but you see, like, Lockheed proposing refuelable LOX hydrogen landers, you know, potentially at the gateway. You you see NASA talking about these three-stage landers that have a mix of cryo and storable propellants it's definitely on people's radar screens, it looks like, at least in lunar orbit, because they can pretend like you couldn't do the same thing in Leo. Um I don't know, sorry I'm a little cynical about all of this after you know seeing a good idea get ignored for as long as it has. But they are actively they are actively looking at things like that. Yeah, I think that answers does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, I know, def- definitely. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode of Space 3D. We'll be back soon with part two of our interview with Jonathan Goff. Until then, on behalf of my co-hosts, Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.